Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And I'm like, we're about to go meet with Steve Jobs, the guy that invented <laughs> the Macintosh. What, what the yeah. heck? So I could be happy. <laughs> right. So we called up. Welcome to Game Dev Advice, the game developers podcast. Your place for resources and in-depth conversations with other game development professionals. I'm your host, John J.P. Podlasic. I've worked at 10 different game companies, starting back in 1989 with the TurboGrafx-16. Over the decades, I've developed games like Mortal Kombat, Avengers Initiative, Beavis and Butthead, and numerous others. I now work for a startup called Level X. But this podcast isn't about me. It's about you and the game development community. So if you have questions or ideas, give a call, 224-484-7733, or go to the gamedevadvice.com website. So let's kick things off with the new Game Dev Advice. Today's guest is Chris Hewish of Exola. He's been in the game industry for 30 years, working at Microprose, Activision, Skydance, in many other places. He shares his journey on getting into the industry and how he's been successful, along with some great stories. Enjoy. Hey, Chris, how's it going tonight? It's going well, John. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing good. So where are you calling in from? I am calling in from sunny California, Los Angeles, California. These are weird times. Um, How are you doing with COVID-19 and kind of everything going on right now with, with yourself personally and the company? It's certainly been a interesting time. You know, and I think I've mm-hmm. been encountering a lot of the same things that everybody else has, both professionally and personally. On the personal side, we have two young kids. So that's been a stressor, just trying to think yeah. about not only family safety, but what do you do on the education front? And, right. you know, I know that that's a big issue for a lot of people out there and um, is, is mm-hmm. certainly a concern. But it's amazing how resilient kids are, and it's kind of inspirational to see them adapt and go through their day. And then on the work front, it's been quite an adjustment. Fortunately, the company is sort of a multinational, so we were already used to working with people in other departments, in other places. So that was a natural precursor to everybody going remote. Although I think we encountered, at least initially, the same issues that a lot of people did when they went virtual, which was just the overwhelming abundance or, or too many sort of video conferences, right? How <laughs> right. You, your day just- Zoom fatigue. Zoom yeah. fatigue. Oh my, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So we're still working that out, but we've done a number of things that have, have helped with that. That too, with, you know, the, um, being international in different time zones and stuff, you know, it's always at 7am or 9pm and things like that. So you have to kind of work through that. Indeed. In fact, I think there's been a little bit of a relaxing of the boundaries in that regard. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, so we have, you know, I have noticed that the day tends to start a little earlier, ends a little Mm -hmm. later because people are more comfortable just doing off hours from home, right. Right. Than they would have been in the office. And interestingly, 
you know, I mentioned up front about the family piece of it. I'm starting yeah. to notice a little bit of a, a difference between people who have families and people who don't <laughs> in, uh, in when they are available right. or scheduling meetings. Right? right. So, you know, what do you mean we can't do this meeting now? You're like, what? No, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, um, but overall it's been good and it really has, you know, the team has been amazing and they've, they've really rallied. And mm-hmm. um, I know there's a lot of concern or at least there was a lot of concern going into this with all companies around productivity and, yeah, it's really it's really cool to see that productivity has actually gone up, at least for us. We've seen that too at Level X. So your current role, um, I, I think you just started this new role about five months ago or so. You, you want to talk a little bit about that in the company? I started the new role as president at Exola actually in mid March, right okay. when the wow, yes, right, right when it happened, right when oh. it happened. So I was able wow. to spend a total of four days in the office <laughs> before there were the mandatory, you know, sort of lockdowns or stay-at-home orders, and mm-hmm. it, it was it was it was certainly interesting. Over the course of that week, I was watching sort of the mm-hmm. office dwindle, right? Fewer and fewer people were in the office until that yeah. last day before it was mandatory. There were just maybe four or five of us in the office. On the one hand, it was a very short period of time to jump into a new company face-to-face, but yeah, it because of the situation and just the dwindling number of people in the office, it created an opportunity to get more, I think, meaningful FaceTime right out of the gate. Okay. Right. Yeah. And fortunately I've, I know a number of people in the company. Um, I've known a number of people there for, for years. So there was already mm-hmm. a bit of a rapport and that was right. really helpful. Any way to help accelerate, you know, when you get thrown into a new role, especially in those, you know, kind of circumstances, that's great. So in terms of the industry, you've got a, you know, great background between design and production things like that. You want to talk about how you got started? Absolutely, John. I was really lucky with my start in the industry. I basically grew up in a hobby store and that's where I started playing Dungeons and Dragons (laughs) and all kinds of board games and everything, right? And Mm -hmm. in that hobby store, I really, between that and my parents, I got sort of two vectors of encouragement around pursuing what you love to do and the support to do that. And I really, I got a real taste for games. Uh, It was published at 16 in a sort of a module, a fantasy game module. And after after college, I said, you know what? I'm going to listen to this advice that I had gotten listen to my passion. I'm going to take the summer off after college and try to get a job in the games industry. And if that fails, then I'll go and, and pursue something in media, which had been my sort of education in school, right? Okay. So yeah. I applied to my favorite game company at the time, which was Games Workshop. You know, I played all of their games, was a super fan. And, mm-hmm. you know, I sent my quote unquote resume, which when you just graduate college <laughs> is nothing, right? Yeah. So I wrote Good a cover team. letter. Um, and this cover letter, I wrote it in the voice of an orc war boss, a fictional orc <laughs> war boss. <laughs> Great. And, um, you know, I didn't know any better, right? I was just yeah. a super fan pursuing my passion. And, yeah. you know, this this letter was written in the same vernacular that, that Games Workshop uses when it, when it has their orcs talking, right? In, yeah. Okay. And uh, sent that off. It, mm-hmm. Lo and behold, it worked. I ended up getting a wow. job there in the, starting out in their mail room, uh, doing mail order. So picking wow. packing orders, old school, yeah. taking orders yeah, yeah. on the phone, going out to the warehouse and, and filling those orders. Oh, it's classic. It, it was, what year was this? This was 1990 back in the day. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Floppy disks and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Exactly. You know, it was really cool. That was my first introduction to the whole idea that a company, there are companies out there that are looking for people who are passionate about their content more, mm-hmm. more than they are looking for people who are skilled 
skilled at a particular trade. So in this instance with Games Workshop, at least at the time, part of my interview process there, right, the letter of recommendation was a entry, sort of the key to enter and and get a chance to interview. And during the interview, they gave a hundred question test which went over, it was a hundred wow. questions drawn from all of their games and their literature. And you had to get at least 80 of those questions, right. And it was things like, really? Oh yeah. It was a hundred questions. That's, that's not your typical interview. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Impressive. It was great though. I mean, it was, you know, things like what's the strength of a, of a dwarf troll slayer, right. Or, you know, who's, you know, what, what chapter of Marines has, you know, green armor and, you know, a, a sword, you know, that yeah, kind of well, stuff. And okay. that was sort of my first lesson in the industry around your passion can for, for some companies overcome a lack of any technical expertise, right. Or not expertise, mm-hmm. but experience. Not that you need a lot of experience to work in the mailroom, but that, <laughs> that did, a foot in the door though, right. That's so, right. Yeah, exactly. And that was a foot in the door and went in from there, started managing uh, one of their local stores, did conven- mm-hmm. ran conventions and created scenarios for cons. And yeah. from there, I jumped over to Microprose. Ah, yeah, yeah. Simulations in Maryland. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that, again, just to date myself uh, at the time, Microprose had put out a open house invitation in the newspaper uh, looking for, <laughs> for all <laughs> disciplines, right? They were staffing up a across the board. Yeah. There was a, they were looking for game designers and okay. I said, you know, I love games. I've done a lot of game design on the, on the pen and paper and the board game side of things. Right. I don't know anything about computers, but I'm going to give it a shot. I had just learned right with my games yeah. workshop experience that passion can, can take you far. So I said, mm-hmm. I'm going to use that passion and, and see what I, what I can do. So went to their open house and spoke yep. with them and um, said, you know, I, I really, I'm interested in design. And and I was upfront. I said, I I really don't know anything about computers, but I'm willing to bet it's easier to teach someone how to work a computer than it is to teach them game design theory. And fair argument. Yeah, exactly. And I said, so, you know, if if you believe in that the same way that I do, why don't you bring me in as an apprentice game designer and Mm -hmm. give it a year and see where it goes. So much to my surprise, they called me back. I got to (laughs) sit down and do an interview with Sid Meier. Oh, I was going to say, I didn't, yep. I didn't want to say it, but oh, <laughs> Sid and Bruce. Yes. Wow, those are those are two heavy hitters. That's impressive. It was it was amazing. It, it was like one of these. Wow. It was like a, it was almost like a thesis interview. There was a, t- the way I remember it, there was this <laughs> table and there were four or five of these guys sitting behind it. Total uh-huh. heavy hitters, right? And yeah, yeah. And they, they interviewed me and um, everyone bought into it. So my That's great. quote unquote apprenticeship began as me working in QA. And <laughs> so yep. I came in and we made the agreement that I'd start as a tester. But during that mm-hmm. year, I would get to shadow the designers and learn from them. And if everything went well, transition yeah. to a design job and mm-hmm. and that happened those are great stories and yes qa has traditionally always been kind of a foot in the door too right because it's like people have passion and they want to get in and sometimes they want to do that the rest of their lives but a lot of times it's, it is again another foot in the door and i think it's useful too because if you're doing qa in-house someplace you kind of get to see behind the curtain how games are made and, and you interact with designers and programmers and artists and stuff and it is kind of a good way to be exposed Sid and Bruce wow those that had to be pretty interesting uh intimidating right for an interview so that's honestly I think now it would be more intimidating than it was then because I was still so young and naive <laughs> right You're like oh, who are these guys hey how you doing <laughs> exactly let me tell you about orcs what do you wish you had known 
when you had started? I think I wish, you know, I wish I had known that sometimes there's more power and not power in a control sense, but there's more yeah. power in being able to move things forward by listening than there is by telling. Okay. And I think as a, as a young game designer, chock full of ideas, right? There were times when I was too eager to sort of try to sell my ideas versus mm -hmm. taking the time to listen to what engineers, artists, you know, producers, what other stakeholders on the team had in mind. And it, and that listening doesn't mean you have to just go with other people's ideas, but there's mm -hmm. a lot of value to, well, it helps, A, it helps form your own ideas or refine them, uh, but, yeah. but B, it also leads to much greater buy-in from the team, which mm -hmm. makes it much more likely that you'll actually be able to get your ideas implemented and implemented in a way that may actually be better than what you had initially thought. Yeah. It, it makes it more collaborative, right. Versus um, just like, and I want to do this and I want to do that. And I want to, you know, those people that you're just like, ah, oh, you're just yep. giving me a headache. Right. Versus the people that have ideas, but they listen and then they're like, oh, I should incorporate that idea into my idea. And now it's a better idea versus just somebody that just keeps spouting their idea. And then is like a broken record. Um, yeah. So yeah. That is smart. Okay. And, and I think there was, there was a second thing, actually, this one mm -hmm. sort of, um, this one I picked up uh, what, during my tenure at Activision and there was a, there was a, an executive who would often give these, the production executive who would give these examples or say, Hey, we should do this, right. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we should, you know, he might say, we should have a plant on the table that you can pick up and, and, you know, be able to do whatever you want with that. And people would hear that idea and say, well, that's a stupid idea. Right. And mm -hmm. what I learned subsequently and came to appreciate, he and I spoke at length when I was sort of like talking with him about all these crazy ideas and the disruption that was having with the team. Yeah. And he said to me, look, he's like, those are just ideas. What I'm trying to do is convey something deeper. I don't care about the example, right? What I'm trying yeah. to convey with that pick a plan up off the table thing and be able to throw it or break it is we should have more interactivity in the environment. I'm like, oh, okay. So what I, what I learned is okay. often yeah. people get hung up on the example and they don't mm. look at what is underneath it, right? Right. And like the meaning behind it. That's right. right. The meaning behind it. And often you'll find like, yeah, the example might be crap or it might you know, because it's coming from somebody who's not as creative as a designer or artist, perhaps. Yeah. But they still may have a really valid uh, perspective of, of something that's deeper, the meaning, as you said, you know, something that's going to benefit the game overall. And mm -hmm. I, that is something I wish I had learned earlier, because that would have, I think, made a lot of collab and it comes back to collaboration. It would have improved yeah. a lot of collaboration. And I could have, not just for myself, but I could have been sort of that uh, sort of translator for teams in a better way of being able to translate ideas to meaning. So, you know, thinking back to how you got your first job, like what, you know, advice would you give someone looking to get, say their first job in the industry? So don't get discouraged. Don't think that yeah. um, trying to get your first job in the industry, it's, it's hard for starters. But I would say don't get discouraged if you see a job you want and you you don't have all of the requirements for it. Remember that if you're you're passionate about it, that that can go a long way. 
Mm -hmm. I also would advise people not to BS their way through things, right? Yeah, yeah, Um, right. You know, highlight your strengths, highlight your passions, try to show how they apply to the job, even if you don't have all of those skills. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, another piece of advice I give a lot of people who are trying to get into games is, you know, look at alternate paths to get your foot in the door, such as QA. Um, You know, I think another area that there's a lot of opportunity that people forget about because everyone's always looking at the brass ring, right? Like I want, I want the brass ring. Lead designer. Exactly. And it's like, okay, before you get there, you know, no one's hiring you to be a lead designer because you don't have that experience yet, but you, you can actually get that experience. If you look, go a little bit of the indie route and you look at, you know, other people in your area who might want to collaborate to create an indie game. Right. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be something that sets the world on fire just something that gets you through the game development process, right? So if you want to be yeah. a designer, go to go on to, to you know, Meetup or, like, or one of these things. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. right. Or IGDA or, or, or yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. And find people in, the, in, in your area that may want to make a game and maybe they've never made one before either and, and mm-hmm. give it a shot because that will at least give you something for your portfolio, right? Right. And game jams too. Game right? jams. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Definitely. So passion and sort of bootstrap ways to get in, right. To, to show that if you, if you haven't gone to school for it or you don't have a degree or, or whatever, uh, you can mm-hmm. still get that experience in other ways. You know, in my role, I look at resumes and I look at people and there's, you know, two candidates with the same experience, but then one candidate has released, you know, one or two indie games, you know, on their own or collaborating with somebody else. You have something to look at. It shows that, initiative, you know, especially more for entry-level roles. So that automatically puts them, you know, a leg up on, on the other person because it's like, oh, they don't have the exact requirements for the role, but they've, they've put these two or three games out and they've done this other stuff, which shows that there's that uh, passion and focus. And it's, they go above and beyond just like, well, I have a CS degree, so hire me versus <laughs> someone else with a CS degree that's also done some other stuff. Absolutely. And I mean, even in addition to all of that, get to know the company that you're trying to apply for, play their games, right? Mm-hmm. Be a fan yeah. and, you know, don't be afraid to show that, you know, that passion and let that come through because people, yeah. you know, look, when it, you've done tons of interviews, you know, I've done a lot of interviews it's great to have an interview with somebody who gets you charged up, right? Who makes you who you're, feel positive about the interview after you leave. And it, it wasn't yeah. just a like, okay, I'm trudging through this. That point about playing games too, right? Because it's like, in most cases, they're, they're they're downloadable for free or whatever. And it's like, you interview somebody and like, no, I, I didn't play in your games. Like, well, you're applying for a job for a game company. It's like, <laughs> check out the games and then you can speak to them. And then I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, that level three is kind of hard. And uh, that shows again that, that initiative kind of like, you know, whether it's that or even, you know, doing a, a well-crafted cover letter, those kind of things make a difference. And, you know, you can't recommend those enough because it, it does help you stand above the crowd. Absolutely. What about advice for someone trying to advance their career in say design or production? Cause you've done both uh, before your role as you know, president of Exola. So a lot, I think part of it depends upon, I was going to say it depends upon the size of company that they're at or the size of team that they're on. If you're, right. If, yeah. right, if you're working in a big AAA studio and you're looking to advance your, your 
sort of design path, then mm -hmm. you're going to want to specialize, right? And, yeah. you know, sort of pick a path to go. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas if it's more on a smaller scale, then, then being sort of a jack of all trades is much more beneficial. Right. Uh, having said that, just to, to step back, I think both for design and production, when you're looking to advance your career and get into a role that you're going to be starting to manage people, you're going to be working more cross-discipline, mm -hmm. really focusing on your communication skills, being able to yeah. not just document things, but being able to gather ideas, gather data, reformulate it and represent it in a way that is easily understood by people, not only in your discipline, but other disciplines is a very yeah, synthesize important Synthesize it and make it digestible, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the key things as a, des as a designer, you want to start to know a little bit about how, you know, the animation works or how the art team works or engineering so that you mm -hmm. can speak to them, uh, you know, a little bit more uh, in their language. But at the same time, yeah. <laughs> at the same time, so that you aren't sort of BSed by, by them, you know, so, right. You know, right. So that you can understand when an engineer is telling you something can't be done. Is that mm -hmm. really because it can't be done or is it because <laughs> they just don't have the time or they don't yeah. want to do it that way? And, right, right. Right. So if you don't know anything, engineers would never do that. They would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So as a, as a designer and a producer, you know, right. you need to understand not just the technology and tools, at least have a familiarity with how things function or the concept yeah. of how things work. But you also need to understand the architecture of your own game and your own mm. team, right? Mm. So that you can help navigate and, and make your way through bottlenecks or points of resistance or whatever it might mm. be. Because yeah. at the end of the day, you know, both design and production, production communication is is so important, and I think that's why you see a lot of designers becoming producers, right? Uh -huh. Because yeah. design tends to work with all departments, tends to have to learn how to communicate and think of all the different pieces that go into making something. And that naturally flows into production. And mm -hmm. I, I've often found that some of the best producers have been designers before. And, and that gives them a real good overview of how the whole process yeah. works. It's funny if you talk about the engineering thing, there was, how should I say this without getting people in trouble, but there was a company I was at where um, there was like a technical group and then there was like the publishing side that uh, was for a big media company and no ideas about video games. So it became kind of like a running joke when stuff was asked that the engineers didn't want to do. It was a 64K memory buffer issue, which was just total bullshit. <laughs> you know? But that was the line that they would say. And then people on the other other end of the line being, oh, okay, okay. So you, so you can't do that because it's a 64K memory buffer. Yeah, yeah, we can't do it because of that. Oh, okay. And, and then that was like just their like, you know, escape for, for doing something they didn't want to do. And the people on the other end of the phone never questioned it or didn't understand what that mean, or excuse me, what that meant. So it was like this running joke of like, just call it the 64k memory buffer which again to, to date myself 64k is like is like what nothing but um yeah that was like a running gag was just like yeah just tell them the 64k memory buffer yeah we can't do that because of the 64k memory buffer <laughs> oh okay ah, ha, 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 ha. we pulled the wool over their eyes so yeah having that understanding and and not just kind of being blinded by what the other disciplines are and what they do i think serves you and and makes you more respected absolutely and and then having the confidence or the just mm -hmm. having the 
emotional intelligence to be able to respond to that and say, okay, guys, yeah. okay, I, I know there's no 64K buffer, you know, right, right. what's really going on here? Right. Right. Yeah. And not yeah. be mad about it, but you know, right. that that is almost like that earlier point about it's an example. So it's it's mm-hmm. certainly something being used to block you, but what's what's really underneath, what's really going on, right? Yeah. And right, it's like, right. okay, do you guys not have enough sort of resources to do that? Um, do you think mm-hmm. it's just an idea that doesn't really fit? You know, that's where a good producer can dig into that and and find out what's going on and right. and help the project. You know, it may be that the engineers maybe they maybe they're they're okay with the idea, but they just don't have anybody to work on it or yeah or something right so then a producer can take that and you know run that up the flagpole and and potentially Mm -hmm. get more resources or adjust the the scope somewhere else right to free up some right hey hope you're enjoying the show if you are please go to patreon.com backslash game dev advice we'd love to see if you can support the show and help uh, new episodes keep coming out that's patreon.com backslash game dev advice thanks You know, and that's a good point too about emotional intelligence, right? Because there, that is a key component on production, right? There, there is kind of I can manage the Jira and do the things and make the tickets and and all that kind of nuts and bolts of it. But you have to have the other side of that and be able to communicate with people, have that emotional intelligence, quietly call in a nice way bullshit when it's bullshit, and and not just be the person that just pushes Jira around, but doesn't uh, understand that human element. And sometimes people understand the human element and they're good at communicating and talking, but then they just stare at Jira and their brain can't process that. So I think in production, you need to have both sides of that coin. I'm glad you brought that up because it's not came up before on the show. And I think emotional intelligence is very important for all roles, especially design and production. Absolutely. I mean, we've, we've all worked with producers. There, there are producers out there that are universally hated right? People just <laughs> yes, don't want right. to work with them. And right. yeah. you know, whether it's on the publisher side or on even on the dev mm-hmm. side. And right. and then you have those producers where people just, they, they're respected, people love working for them. Mm-hmm. And it just seems so easy, right? And, yeah. um, you know, at the end of the day, the team, one of the biggest jobs of a producer is to not, not, not only make sure the trains are running on time, but to make sure that the tracks mm-hmm. are clear, you know, that the, the yep. team has yep. what they need uh, that mm-hmm. that the team is is freed up of blockers and distractions and can right. really focus and do what they do. Yeah, yeah, removing obstacles, right? And, and and that's part of it too. Let the artists do art, the designers do design, and the uh, engineers code, and remove those things that are going to stop them to keep the train uh, not just running but the tracks cleared. All right, you've worked on a lot of games, a lot of places. You know, you mentioned Activision, Microprose, all these other companies. What's been one or two of your favorite uh, games or projects to work on? There have been quite a few, but I, I would say mm-hmm. one of them was a game called Vampire the Masquerade. And okay. that was a game when I was at Activision uh, that I I really loved that project. And the reason was I was a huge fan of the pen and paper game Vampire created by okay. a company called yeah. White Wolf. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. that's right. I remember their logo now. My... So you know, I was a super fan of that game and it was Activision was still small enough at the time where I was able to ideate that, uh, from start to finish, meaning mm-hmm. I proposed, you know, identified this IP, put together a proposal, pitched it to Bobby and, and the rest of the team. 
got mm. the green light to pursue it, you know, acquired the IP, found the developer. Wow. We teamed up with this amazing developer, probably one of the best developers I've ever had the chance to work with, Nihilistic Software. Teamed up with those guys and created a really just a fun game that was really true to the IP and was mm -hmm. cutting edge for its time. And that was just, that was a lot of fun. Right. It was really fulfilling. I had a really, there were so many elements that made this fulfilling and, and made it one of my favorite experiences. So not only yeah. being able to, you know, take an IP that I loved or a, brand, a game I loved and, and bring that into the digital space, uh, mm. but working with a great team. And then also my, my, the marketing team I was working with at the time was fantastic. And that was one of the best relationships I've had with the marketing team and very collaborative. We were really in sync. And uh, so it was just one of those times where it was personally fulfilling, creatively yeah. fulfilling. Everybody I worked with was awesome, was smarter than me. You know, I, I felt like I was mm -hmm. really fortunate to be it with this group. And we made something that I think, you know, I'm very proud of, and it stood the test of time. No, that's impressive that you, you know, from A to Z, you did all of that and you identified it and did the pitch and found the developer and all that kind of stuff. When did that come out? Is it 90s or 2000s? I'm trying to remember. Oh my gosh. I want to say that might've been early 2000s. Yeah. Okay. Late nineties, yeah. early 2000s. Now, now yeah. I'm on the spot here. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> I've got plenty of games. I'm like, what decade was that? Yeah, exactly. Netflix what decade was that? Just thinking about the industry right now and everything going on, um, you know, what are you curious about? For me, the thing that I'm most excited about right now, I would say there's two things and, and they sort of, they a lot, they support one another. One mm -hmm. is just the evolution of sort of cross-platform play of the walls coming down, right? So that yeah. all these different platforms, um, you know, are starting to, to allow players to, to play together. And yeah. I think that's just such an amazing uh, benefit for the player, right? being right. able to play with your friends. If, if you've got an Xbox and they're on a PlayStation or I'm on Steam and we can all play mm -hmm. together. So yeah, it's not walled gardens anymore. Not walled gardens, anymore. exactly. Yeah. And yeah. then seeing that also come down, you know, potentially across even hardware, like mobile to console to PC, right? You know, that's, mm -hmm. that's interesting, that, that opportunity. But what that sort of also feeds into, which is a bigger idea that I'm particularly excited about is this concept that games are becoming their own social platforms. And mm. I know that's something that's been spoken about, you know, a, a bit recently. We've seen yeah. it, we've seen the beginnings of it with things like Minecraft and Roblox, and now what Epic is doing with Fortnite. Mm -hmm. You know, I, but I think these are just the beginnings of, you know, how, how games are turning into these experiences that it's not just about the competitive or cooperative nature of the play pattern that's going on within it, but it's, yeah. the, it's the whole way you socialize. And one of the reasons that resonates for me is for quite a while, when I talk with parents about their kids playing games and, you know, often parents are, are if they're not gamers themselves, they think, oh, mm -hmm. this is a, this is a waste of time or it's a bad yeah. thing. And, and I have to point out that it's like, no, you got, you got to remember that games are your kid it's a form of social currency for your kids right it's mm -hmm. it's something that that they can get together with other with their peers and have something in common with and even though it may seem like they're yeah. playing by themselves it gives them some social currency to when they go and they see their friends in person you know to to be part of a group or whatever it may be and right. to see that start start to really take off uh in the sense of it's not only something that 
kids can can share in common, but they can experience together now beyond just play, right? If it's concerts mm-hmm. or if it's um, yeah, you know exactly. self identifying you know identifying who they are or whatever it might be, I think that is something that's really powerful. And one of the things I think that's really neat now that we're seeing the walls come down and the games are, are becoming social networks of their own. And we're mm-hmm. providing these tools to developers to be able to have a direct relationship with their players and with their community. And um, that I think is also really exciting. The fact that to game makers and game players can now be connected more directly. And yeah. you know, it, it becomes not just a, a shared experience, but the communication starts to go two way, right? And mm-hmm. these games- Yeah, it's not read or write, it, it, it goes both ways. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So. That, I mean, that's kind of mm-hmm. just a, a, a snapshot of what I think is is kind of exciting. The, the walls coming down, the social networks, and that direct yeah. relationship between game makers and game players. Roblox is is just off the charts, right? Like my sons are older and I was like, what? What is that? And then I, I started reading about the numbers they're doing and the engagement and, and how player creators are, are doing all this stuff. Um, you know, they're teenagers and that's that's fantastic. So you know, that's exciting. And then you look at, um, when you say concerts, you know, Travis Scott, right? Like that's not my thing. My son Jackson to, to Travis. And, but like I saw the numbers, I mean, millions of people saw that, uh, when he did that Fortnite cross promotion thing. And I was like, wow, that's kind of crazy. Like a concert in a video game. Um, so it, it is more than just log in, do the thing and log out. There is like a ecosystem in there. And, um, Absolutely. And, and you mentioned actually another thing that I think is really exciting, which comes out of all of this, the sort of the, the create the player creators, right? The players that are creating yeah. content. I think that is that goes hand in hand with these games being much more social and much more relevant. I remember years ago hearing a talk, uh, somebody from Valve was talking about, I believe it was, it was Team Fortress, and uh, they were talking about how the sort of the marketplace in that, right? Um, it began where they started a little, little bit of user-generated content in. It was like 90% created by the team and 10% by uh, the community. And right. they very quickly found that the community-generated content was much more popular than the developer-created content. And it's exponential, right? They, there's you know thousands and thousands, you know thousands and thousands of developers to create content. Exactly, and and that the just that the stuff the community was creating was much more was one step ahead or one step closer to being on the Ah. pulse of what the community wanted right right and it you know if if the if a player is creating content they can bring it to the to the marketplace much quicker than if the developer is creating it and Mm -hmm. as a result of that it can be much more timely and much more relevant so i think that just reinforces the idea that these are it's much it's much more social much higher engagement now that the players are actually part of of making these worlds. What about potential threats? Like, what are you concerned about in the game industry or is anything that stands out? You know, I suppose, I mean, it's technology, right? So one of the underlying, there's always a threat to any technology that something new can come along and disrupt it, right? So Mm -hmm. I think there's the urge to play and escape and be social through interactivity. Those urges right. will, I think, will always be there. Those are sort of basic human drives. Right. The way those are sort of expressed or, or engaged with, 
I think that's where things could change. So it's not so much a threat mm -hmm. to the macro concept of a game industry, but I think there are always threats to the current sort of mode or the current way that it is delivered to players, right? So, hmm. you know, I think one of the, and we've seen, we've seen a little bit of this over the years. And, and what I mean is back in sort of the mid 2000s, right? We saw you had, you had a, a game industry that was very sort of mature for the time, stuck in a particular type of they were making a particular type of game or get, making particular types of games for a particular right. type of audience and fixed genres, fixed yeah. genres. The industry was kind of maxed out in its size. Right. And mm -hmm. it wasn't, there really weren't many new players being added. And, uh, it, you know, it was a good industry, but it wasn't what it is today. And, and, and yeah, along came smartphones, right. The mobile devices <laughs> and yeah, that was a huge threat at the time. It, it was a huge shift to what happened in the industry. Even though now mm. the industry is much better for it, there were many companies that that went under because they were not able to right. to shift their models or shift their way of thinking or the team. embrace it. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, whether it's on the publisher side, companies like THQ, or even on the mm -hmm. developer side, right? There were many really great developers from that era that through whether it was hubris or entrenchment in what they were doing, just weren't right. able to adapt, right? And tried to make games, the same kind of games they made for a new platform or a new piece of hardware mm -hmm. that had a new type of player uh, behavior. And they just weren't able to make, they weren't able to put us, put that sort of round peg into a square hole, right? Or yeah, yeah. could get their head around it. Yeah. yeah. So I think the threat to the game industry is more around what new technologies can come along that would disrupt existing business models and existing ideas of design theory, right? And mm -hmm. um, that's a threat, but it's also an opportunity because it means that new players will come into the space and new innovation will happen. Um, right. You know, I think outside of that, there's always the threat of regulation. You know, mm -hmm. if if games, you know, this this seems to always come up, right? Oh, games are games bad for you or or whatnot. Right. It yeah. seems to be more of a political uh, item than than an actual, you know, sort of yeah. real health thing. But mm -hmm. but that can always be a threat, right? Of yeah, um, scapegoating, right? You yeah. Know, uh, it was the game that made the person do that, and uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I think I think there's the threat, and the mobile space certainly has suffered from this to some degree. There's the threat of just poor content turning people mm -hmm. off, right? Um, yeah. Of of holding the industry back from what it could be. Uh, and mm -hmm. at the same time, there's the threat of, you know, people who feel that everything needs to be great content, right? You know, there's it doesn't all have to yeah. be AAA, right? There's there's a great market for for more casual uh, types of experiences as we see we've seen. In terms of technology, right? Uh, do you have any thoughts on AR or VR or MR or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I spent a number of years on the on the VR side of things, both at Servios and Skydance, and right. I love the technology. I think there's still a fair degree of friction to adoption of it. Um, yeah, you know, sure. I liked. I believe I'm a believer that one day with with mixed reality, we'll get there where you have eyewear or glasses that are lightweight enough and powerful enough uh, with you know, inside out tracking. So you don't need controllers where you can have six mm -hmm. degrees of freedom, um, mm -hmm. where you can, you know, it can be smart about the environment around you so that you're safe. Yeah. 
Uh, and right. you know, the ability to get into it is, you know, as simple as putting on glasses, mm-hmm. that's the dream. And we all know, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a believer in technology. I think it'll get there one day. I just mm-hmm. don't know, you know, I think it may be a ways off. And I think, yeah. I think these are technologies that quite frankly, the game, you know, the game industry got excited about, but I think they may see more, and we've already seen this, I think there may be more short-term applications in other industries, right? Whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, the field of, whether it's medicine or research and development or, yeah. in you know, uh, architecture, architecture, right? Yeah. Produ- military, military yeah. production, you know, I think all of those, I think gamers and game developers are quick to forget that there are other industries that use technology. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, and even game investors, right. You know, um, yeah. you know, we've seen so many technologies driven by video games that often people forget that other industries can drive technology as well. Three or five years ago, there was like this whole gold rush where like VR is the thing and, and everybody jumped into it and all these studios popped up and, um, they were like, well, we're going to make a great indie game on VR and it's going to sell a billion copies and stuff. And it was just, there was too much friction uh, uh, between just hardware setup and, and space and cost uh, to buy a $1,000 Vive and or, you know, $3,000 computer and all that kind of stuff. And I think people were naive towards that. And then there was other spaces in enterprise um, that are doing it and, and making money at it. So, but there are examples of different games that are doing well in VR, but it's, they're more, more of an anomaly or, or more of an outlier than um, a lot of the companies that just thought, well, this is the next technology. So it's, you just make a game and the money truck backs up and uh, everybody's rich. It's, it, it was uh, not that easy, but I, I also agree with you too. The technology is progressing. It's not there yet in some ways. Um, you know, the quest is kind of taking that, step towards there, but then you, you also have that weirdness where you're totally isolated and you have no idea what's going on around you. Um, Magic Leap is is interesting, but it's very, very cost prohibitive. So in terms of the industry, what are you, what's a funny or odd story that you can share that you're comfortable sharing, right? Because I'm, I'm sure you've got a bazillion of them. And Yeah, you know, one of my favorite stories, this occurred when I was at Microprose and I was a designer slash producer at the time. We were, we were working on a game and we were in crunch and uh, crunch. Uh, good old crunch. <laughs> yeah. And it was during the winter and the team was in, you know, at the office working and they were mm-hmm. working there on a Friday and a, and a blizzard hit. Right. And it ended up yep. um, being so heavy that part of the team got sort of snowed in to the office and the way that uh, the way the office where it was situated at the time, it was at the bottom of a little hill. So the, mm-hmm. you weren't able to actually drive up out of it when it was all iced and snowed in. <laughs> right. Yeah. So trapped. We were trapped. Yeah. Right. So we, yeah. we had a few people that were trapped in there and they just decided, you know what, we're just going to, we'll just work through it. So mm-hmm. I, um, you know, being, having no other obligations at the time, I sort of loaded up on some food and some supplies, hopped in my car, slid down the hill and, <laughs> you know, went on in and, you know, joined the team for the weekend. And, right. you know, we had, we had an amazing time. It was so much mm-hmm. fun. And, you know, we got a lot of work done, but we also played, yeah. played a lot of cooperative games. Um, so it was, it was just a real blast, a good shared experience. Right. Bonding, stuff like that. Yeah. Bonding. Another great story. So mm-hmm. this was, 
when I was working, uh, so want to be careful here. It does so long ago. Who cares? So I was, (laughs) so I was working, I was working in QA at the time and this was another micro micro pros story. Uh, And I can give a Mm -hmm. few more updated ones afterwards, but we had, I had a, the QA team, we found a little spider one day in the office and it was a small, it was just a small little spider, but I I got a, I got a terrarium for it. And and we kind of kept it as our pet in the office as our mascot. (laughs) And the guy at the time who sort of ran the development part of the company, he just, it just bugged him. He just could not stand it. Right. And, uh, right. and so one day, and, and so there was that, and he had some tension with the actual president of the company, right? They just, there, there was some friction between the guys. So okay. one day the, the spider dies and, uh, <laughs> president comes by and he's like, Hey, what happened to your spider? Oh, it died. Okay. And, you know, come in the next day and there is this big Chilean rose tarantula in the terrarium, (laughs) beautiful spider. And (laughs) so it's like, Oh, wow. Where where did that come from? It's like, Oh, well, you know what? The president, he got that for you guys. Oh, that's cool. So later, (laughs) later that morning, the the head of the studio comes walking by and he walks past the terrarium because it was right by the entrance to QA. Yeah. And he kind of does a double take. And he, yeah. What? 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 <laughs> and he got so mad. He's like, what is this? Who the fuck got this spider? I, I said that when that one died, there was no more. And he just was. Spider free. He was right. He was ready to fire somebody. And so we just let him rant for a moment. He's like, I yeah. want a name. I want to know who. I want to know who. It's like, well, it was the president <laughs> and, and just <laughs> shut down right away and, and, and yeah, just sort of stormed out, um, you know, so that <laughs> it's so petty, but it, it was fun. Yeah. One of those stories yeah. that sticks with you. Yeah. In, in QA's, uh, I managed QA for a while. I was a QA and a QA lead and I managed it. And it is, you know, it, it's an interesting environment, right? Because all these people are in there with very sometimes different backgrounds and you're kind of the low person on the totem pole and you're working long hours and often you're playing a game that's buggy and bad, not just like a great game that's buggy, but like a bad game that's buggy. So it's uh, kind of mentally exhausting. So yeah, there's all kinds of just weird shit that happens in QA. There was a a girl who had pet rats and we had to work on a weekend. She brought them in and they were above her desk. And then at some point they fell off and luckily the rats stayed in the cage but it was like rat droppings all over the place oh. and in QA. And so then hardly anybody was in the office. And then I'm walking around with her and trying to find a broom, you know, to clean this up. And I'm just like, is this what my fucking life is? I'm cleaning up rat shit on a Saturday, you know, and it's just, that's just stuff like that happens. Right? And one other story that's a little more recent, which I think yeah. is, there's a good parable to it as well, or a good, you know, there's a good bit of advice. Mm-hmm. So this was when I was at Activision and we were preparing to, we were trying to do some work with Pixar and this was at the highest levels. So this was, you know, Bobby Kotick and Steve Jobs back when Steve was alive. And wow. So down at Activision, we're, we were working on our presentations. We were going to have a big presentation up at the Pixar campus with Steve Jobs and Bobby mm-hmm. and the, you know, the whole thing. And we've yeah. been preparing this for quite some time. And the day before, we, you know, we're supposed to do the whole presentation or a few days before. Mm-hmm. We're doing our final dry run down in the, the boardroom 
in Santa Monica at Activision. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm low man on the t- totem pole. I was the executive producer for everything, but I was, you know, certainly, <laughs> you know, the low, low person on the totem pole, but I'm in, in the room, people are doing the presentation and something just wasn't sitting right with me. And it took me a little mm-hmm. while to realize, I looked around and I'm like, wait a minute, we're doing all these presentations on Dell laptops because that was the default <laughs> hardware for the company at the time. Yeah. And I'm like, we're about to go meet with Steve Jobs, the guy that invented <laughs> the Macintosh. What What the yeah. heck? So I could be happy. <laughs> right. So we called up, somebody called up and checked with Steve's office. And, you know, this, this was a great example of how administrative staff can be really, you know, they can get things right. Some Intel that is beneficial. Yeah. And sure enough, uh, the the feedback was, "Oh my God, do not walk in here with a with a non Apple <laughs> product." Uh, right. They said right. just just last week, some people came in to pitch something to Steve, and they had a Macintosh, but they had a third party mouse, right? Not an Apple mouse, but a third. <laughs> and he he during the presentation, he saw it and he reached over, he picked it up, smashed it on the table, and walked out. <laughs> wow. So. You know, I ran, I was charged with running out, getting a, you know, the best Mac yeah. I could. We loaded everything up and went up there and did the presentations and thankfully yeah. avoided what could have just been a, a real insult. Mm-hmm. The learning there wow. was don't just have a great presentation together, yeah. but take right. some time to understand your audience. Look at exactly. what's important to them, right? And mm-hmm. don't know do your audience. Know your yeah. audience and don't do something that could inadvertently insult them and completely derail what you're trying to do. Right. I mean, if you went that apeshit for a mouse, like you walk in with a Dell, it could have been just like table flipping and uh, meetings adjourned and it's over. Wow. It would not have been and, good. And, right. No. And hats off to you to have that, you know, aptitude to be like, wait a minute, we're, we're going into this person that lives and drinks uh, Max. Uh, and that's the enemy when you come in on a windows machine. So let's, let's be a little conscious about that and do something different. So. Cool. Yeah. That, that was a fun one. So with your role now, um, you're very busy. You have a family. Um, do you have time to play any games at all? Or like, what are you excited about for current games? If you have time to play anything? So yes, I do have time to play games. I still make time to play games. Uh, I sacrifice some of my mm-hmm. sleep. I, I play. <laughs> I, I usually play about two hours of Apex Legends every night. That is okay. a game that I just I am completely sucked into, and mm-hmm. I, I love it. Been playing it for for quite a while now, and okay. I always try to make time to play games. And uh, whether it's yeah. you know this one, I've been on a particularly long run with. But um, when not doing that, you know, there's always something else. So I, and mm-hmm. even though I don't have time to play more games, you know, other games, I do still stay up to date reading, you know, reading about games, watching videos, all of that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just love to stay current. It's, mm-hmm. it's something that you see in the industry where, where sometimes people get kind of in the industry for a while and they stop playing games. And right. that's professionally that can be dangerous but it's also sad because you get into games because you love them right right so tell me a little bit about exola and the company i'm just kind of curious so exola is a company that's been around for 15 years we just had our 15 year anniversary Hmm. and and we like to say we are the the business engine for the video game industry and what i mean by that is you look around and if you're a game maker you have 
multiple engines you can choose from to make your game, whether it's Unreal mm -hmm. or Unity or any number right. of other engines, right? But there aren't any engines that allow you to do the business of your game. And that's where we come in. Mm. So we, we really create the tools and the technology that allows you to run your game business from start to finish. Everything from being mm. able to sell games directly to your players. We have a payment system called PayStation that is integrated okay. with over 700 currencies around the world, whether they're credit wow. cards or debit cards or uh, you know electronic funds, whatever it might be. So mm -hmm. we, we really are a global company. Uh, hmm. our, our tools let you sell your games anywhere. But beyond that, and that's kind of where we started. Our founder 15 years ago in Russia, he was, came from Russia, super smart engineer. He was having trouble paying for the games that he, he wanted to get. And so uh -huh. he created some software that allowed him to use local currency to buy games and it just took off. And yeah. since then, we've really expanded upon that. And we now have things like a game launcher. So if you want to create a launcher for your game, or mm -hmm. if you have a portfolio of games that you want to house within your own launcher, right? We can, we can supply that to you. Okay. We have a great site builder software. This one's really cool, where if, if you want to spin mm. up your own website for your game, within just a few minutes, you can work with our site builder and it will pull all the assets from one of the other stores that you may already be on. So if you have a Steam page, right, yeah. for instance, it'll grab all those assets and automatically build a website for you. And okay. um, that, that can get you up, up to speed really quickly. We mm -hmm. also have uh, in-game in store technologies. So if you want to run it, put mm -hmm. a game in your store and sell virtual items, you can do that. Right. You can also extrapolate that and put it onto your website so people could buy items in your game without going into the game, right? So if you're hmm. on your phone, for instance, and you want to buy some virtual goods so that right. you can have those ready when you get home later tonight to play your game uh, on the PC, then, then you can do that. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have a bunch of other technologies when it comes to influencer marketing, performance-based sort of uh, affiliate programs. Um, there, there's a whole bunch more, a whole publishing sort of system wow. to do cross-platform publishing. So a lot, and we're yeah. always building upon it. And, and one of the things, and one of the things that drew me to the company is it's a company that offers all these, what you could almost say are e-commerce type solutions, but it's, mm -hmm. it's focused purely on the video game industry. So right. there are other competitors out there that have, have some of the things we offer, but, mm -hmm. but nobody has the full suite of what we offer and nobody has the technology built to be purely used for video games, right? So right. yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah, and it's got game developers, right? So, I mean, you're there, right? So yep. it's not just people from B2B space and like, all right, let's get into this market. I hear the video games <laughs> are all the rage, you know, so. Exactly, I mean, that that was the thing. Our founder is a gamer. We have a lot of gamers in, in the company, a lot of people that have worked in the game space. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's it's, it's still part of the games industry, which is which is great because I don't want to leave this industry. And this was a great right. chance to explore a new part of the industry. And mm -hmm. we work with, gosh, I think over fifteen hundred different partners, so a few wow. a few thousand games. So it's a chance to really get a macro view of what's happening in the industry. And right, work, right. Work with, from, from indie to AAA and, and all that kind of stuff, right? So, exactly, yeah. and, and globally, yeah. and yeah. So this is it's a lot of fun. So where can people find you online, uh, website, Twitter, things like that? I mean, we have our company website, xsola.com, x-s-o-l-l-a.com. 
but yep. I, I do have my own site that I periodically update. Uh, it is gamecraft.games. And then on, hmm. on Twitter, it's just at Chris Hewish. Last question. Like, what's one piece of advice you give someone working in the industry right now here in 2020? I would say uh, keep your head up and stay current. Avoid, mm-hmm. avoid getting sort of sticking your head in the sand and thinking that your little piece of the industry is all that there is because yeah. things can change rapidly. And if you're not keeping your head up and looking around at the trends that are happening in the industry, then mm-hmm. not only professionally can that have an impact upon you uh, from, from just in a, being employed, but right. for your own growth, you know, I think it's too easy for people to, to really get sort of hyper-focused on what they're doing and it ends up hurting their, their, what their output because they're, you know, I'm a big believer that if you're keeping an eye on other thing, things that are happening in other parts of the industry or even other industries, you're going mm-hmm. to learn things that are, that can, you can apply to your day job, right? That can, that can help you create yeah. better content. So keep your head up, look around, be aware of what else is happening out there. Yeah. Kind of like have that growth mindset and not just be like, well, this is how you do it. Uh, but be aware, looking around, kind of ear to the ground and, you know, staying current and um, seeing where things are going and being like, huh, I should explore that. I should look into that a little bit more and not just dismiss it. Yeah. And then I guess the only other thing in this, maybe this is a little, <laughs> maybe it's a little funny, the saying, but it's, it's something that I really do try to live by. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this is a small industry. So, yep. you know, it's a cliche to say don't burn bridges, but what <laughs> I, you know, what I like to say is, you know, whenever something happens, you know, take the high road, you know, the view is always better from up there. And mm-hmm. this, yeah. in this industry, it's never going to hurt you taking the high road, right? You know, your reputation yeah. is everything. And um, too often, because it is a passionate creative industry, too often people forget that and mm-hmm. and it can come back to haunt you later. I totally completely a thousand percent agree because yeah, it is, again, it's so much smaller than everybody thinks, right? Because it's so big and so many billions of dollars. There's this perception there's millions of people and it's not. Watch the passion and, and don't burn the bridges because um, it's going to impact you down the road. Um, so take the high road, be the adult in the situation, do the right thing. So yeah, I totally agree with all that. Great. Cool. Thank you. Um, been a pleasure having you on tonight. And um, I really enjoyed this conversation. Likewise, John, this was a lot of fun. And I really appreciate you bringing me on and giving me a chance to share a little bit of my journey with everybody. Thank you. Cool. Thanks for listening to this episode of Game Dev Advice, the Game Developers Podcast. Go to the website at gamedevadvice.com and you can find the show notes along with show notes for all the other episodes. Please also check out the new Patreon page at patreon.com backslash game dev advice. Have a lot of options up there for how you can support the show. Again, that's patreon.com backslash game dev advice. Thanks again for listening and being part of the show. Take care. Bye-bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.